Hi, I'm Michael Morris. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the Christian Fundamentals Discipleship course. Living for Christ is a choice that we have the privilege of making every day. The Bible is brimming with life-giving truths and rich promises from God. It tells us what He is like and sheds light on His plans and purposes for our lives. The better we understand, embrace and apply these truths, the richer our personal relationship with Him will be. here together as we gather tonight. Thank you for the things we're going to discuss and the things we're going to share. And Lord, we do want to just start off tonight thinking of Joan, who's lost Tinny just today. We also lift up Liesl, whose father passed away yesterday. So it's just two in quick succession, Father God. But we want to thank you that you're, in both, both with, with, with Liesl and with Joan, Father, your presence is near. Your grace and your strength are felt, and your comfort, Lord God, is, is felt. And so we lift them up to you tonight, Lord, and we just thank you for the nearness of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that in the good times and the bad times, when all things are rosy and when we mourn, we want to thank you that your word promises us that we will be comforted by you. And I pray, Father, for them at this time, that your comfort and grace would abound towards them, that your peace would rest upon them. Father, tonight as we gather here tonight, we want to think of those who aren't here tonight. And Lord, we just pray your blessing on them. We pray that as people are, are that life is just busy, and as people chase deadlines, and as we lift up Mark to you, he's not well in bed, and we just pray your healing touch on him tonight, Father God. Pray for those who aren't here for, for whatever reason it may be, Lord God, just, just bless them. May your presence and your grace be upon them. In Jesus' name we pray. As we share in the word tonight, we want to pray that revelation knowledge would flow, that it would grip our hearts, my Lord God, and that you would speak into our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. I once heard uh, a preacher at a prayer meeting, and there were quite a few people absent, and he said, and Father, I just want to pray for those who aren't here this morning. Pray they have a miserable day. Pray whatever they do when they sh- when they should sh- 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 whatever they're doing what they shouldn't be doing because they should be here that it'll fail and that they'll never miss this meeting again because of it. Yeah, what well, must I pray that they get blessed when they're staying away from where they should be? He says, "No, you know who that is." Yes, <laughs> it's the kind of thing Arthur would do, isn't it? <laughs> All right, let's talk tonight about biblical giving. The purpose of this lesson, and there's a few, is a, is a few provisos in this, it, right at the start of this lesson, and they are as follows. Number one, a revelation of God's blessing in our lives manifests itself in gratitude and generosity. Did you get that? A revelation of God's blessing. In other words, when we gain an understanding of the greatness to which God blesses us and takes care of us and provides for us, that revelation manifests itself in a heart and spirit of gratitude and generosity. The purpose of this lesson is to understand God's threefold pattern for giving. We will see that God's model of financial management covers all areas of life. Now, please understand that this lesson goes very much in conjunction with what we discussed in the previous lesson, which was stewardship. We discussed money matters. First of all, stewardship. We discussed the blessing of God, and we discussed 
biblical prosperity. What does it mean to be prosperous? How did Jesus demonstrate prosperity to us? And what should we expect in the financial arena of our lives when we look to God? It's important to preface this lesson by stating that giving in a new covenant context is not a law, but rather an act of gratitude and faith. Neither personal salvation nor church membership are dependent upon the practices, upon the practice of the, of the principles presented in this lesson. Also, my desire in presenting this lesson is to provide insight concerning biblical truths and principles about giving in the life of a believer. While I gladly shepherd those who desire to apply these teachings, I don't impose or legislate their practice. Giving is something. If it's not coming from the heart, if it needs to be put upon you from the outside, it's law, it's ritual, it's religion, and then there's no life in it. And we need to remember that because sometimes the language that we use, we struggle with this in the church of speaking about giving in a new, from a new covenant mindset. So, so much of our articulation about giving makes it sound like law like we're just back in the old covenant, like we're carrying on as if nothing has changed and if nothing has happened. Much of the reasoning is very similar, but our points of departure are vastly different. And so what the, what the, my, my, my desire in this lesson is for us to understand the principles behind biblical giving. We're going to talk about first fruits, tithes, offerings, all those kinds of things. As we see them in the old covenant, as we see giving in the new covenant, there's hearts behind it. There's a principle behind it. And when we begin understanding those principles, we can engage in them by faith, receive the reward in the giving as well as in the receiving and in the reaping. Let's talk about financial systems very briefly. The financial system of this world works according to the following principles. Profit and loss. Any business work, works according to profit and loss. And that makes sense. Trade and commerce. Investment and return, as well as savings and interest. The financial system. So basically, the Tony Fitzgerald has a beautiful saying. He says, so much of our life concerning money is orientated around getting all you can, canning all you get, and sitting on the can. It's about getting. It's about acquiring wealth. It's about how can I grow my financial well-being. Do we need to take care of ourselves financially? Well, we need to be frugal and we need to steward what it is that God has given us. Okay, yes, there's a measure of truth in that. But is our prime motivation to get all we can? Is our prime motivation? See, when we even, even within the church, there's, there's so many people who are against this thing called the prosperity gospel. Why? Because so much of the way that it can be presented, isn't always, but can be presented, is about how you can get blessed. It becomes, how can I use the Bible to make me rich? Now, is it God's desire for us to be prosperous? Yes, God delights in the prosperity of His servants. But if that becomes our focus, we've missed the plot. If my child keeps coming to me only for what they can get, there's something wrong in the relationship. There's a deficiency elsewhere which manifests itself in negative behavior. The financial systems of the kingdom of God are based on the principles of blessing and prosperity, which we covered in the previous lesson, as well as sowing and reaping. A couple of scriptures here, 2 Corinthians 9, 10 or 11. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food 
supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. I love that scripture. In other words, God will make sure He is the supplier of my seed. What I do with that seed is up to me. But I can look to Him expectantly for seed. That's, that's a beautiful thing. In other words, God will give me what I need to get the principles going, to get the ball rolling. Does that make sense? If you, you understand the principle of momentum, once you gain momentum in any area of your life, whether you're trying to gain fitness, financial well-being, educational understanding, reading a book of the Bible, when you start out, there's often resistance and it's difficult and we try to get our heads and our minds and our bodies around certain things that they're not used to. But once you start getting momentum, once you start building a little bit of fitness, once you start understanding some financial principles, once you start learning how to walk by faith and apply your faith, it becomes more and more natural. And in this, this area, that's one of the reasons the scripture, I love it because he gives me the seed that I need to get me going. And I've seen him do it for me again and again and again. A little bit earlier on in the same chapter, it says, Now remember this, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows generously, that blessings may come to others, will also reap generously and be blessed. So we see that sowing and reaping in the, in the kingdom of God. That's part of the financial system of the kingdom of God. Deliberately sowing seed, expecting a harvest. And then we also have the principle of giving and receiving. Luke 6.38, Jesus says, Give, and it will be given to you. Not just what you gave, but good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Now this whole principle of measurement is actually quite important. And we are going to get to this a little bit later. How does God measure what we give? Does He look at the value or does He look at the cost? I'm not going to answer the question, but think about that. We often measure what people give by the value. And sometimes when we give, we think, well, I don't think this is very much. I don't know what difference this is going to make. And we belittle even the gifts that we give. But what does God look at? Is it value or is it sacrifice? Is it the heart behind what is given? Jesus instructs us not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, but rather in heaven. Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth or, and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is Jesus truly addressing here? Money or heart? Heart. Where do you place what you value? How many of us get caught up? I'm not even going to say how many of those in the world are chasing money. Never mind those out in the world. How many of us get caught up chasing money? We do. It's something that draws our hearts very quickly and very easily. Who wants more money? Am I the only honest person in the room tonight? We'll want more money. You don't want more money. You need more money. You don't just want it. <laughs> 
He does, but he wants to, you know. There was a guy in our fellowship many years ago, and he was talking about the difference about the difference between being happy and being satisfied. And he said, you know, he once asked somebody, if I gave you an increase, 5,000 rand increase, would you be happy? Yo, I'd be really happy, 5,000 rand a month, that's awesome. He said, okay, great. If I gave you a 5,000 rand increase, would you be satisfied? Ah, altogether different thing, because maybe it could have been 10 or 20 or 15 or 150. Who knows? What does it take to satisfy you? These are questions of heart. And this is what Jesus is talking about in the scripture. This is the essence of what he's talking about. Where, where, what do you value? Where do you place value? Where do you gain significance? To what is your heart orientated? Is your heart orientated towards heaven and the kingdom of heaven and the things of God? Or is your heart orientated to earthly comfort? Is earthly comfort a sin? No. But if that is our pursuit, we're in a problem. There's something wrong in our heart. Does that make sense? There's an idol there. How do we store up for ourselves treasure in heaven? We do so by investing our lives and resources in the kingdom of God. That didn't say the church. I said the kingdom of God. The church has a role to play in the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is not bound within the four walls of a church. Instead of looking out for your own interests in this world, we, for our own interests, we look out for the interests of the kingdom of God. Matthew 6, 32 to 33 says this, For after these things the Gentiles seek. What is he talking about? What are these things? Clothes, food, housing. The stuff that occupies our minds. Where am I going to live? What am I going to do when I retire? What am I going to eat? What are we going to wear? He says, after these things, the Gentiles concern themselves. And he, he, God makes a clear distinction here. And I, want to, I think we need to understand just the beauty of this distinction. The Gentiles concern themselves with these things because they have to. They don't have a God who will take care of them and see to these things for them. They don't acknowledge God. But why on earth are you, he says, worried about these things? Know who your God is. Look at the Vili. Look at the Vili. <laughs> don't know who Vili is, but look at him. Don't I take care of him nicely? Look at the car he drives. Look at the lily on the valley. <laughs> look how beautifully it's adorned. How much, of how much more value are you? And this is where our hearts come into the equation again. Am I able to look at God knowing that He loves me and values me? Am I able to look at Him and say, God, I trust you for my provision. I trust you to come through for me. I don't know what tomorrow holds yet, but I trust you. But seek first, first, not second, first, the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and these things shall be added to you. The financial system of the kingdom of God is completely opposite and counterintuitive to the financial system of this world. It focuses on the benefits of other first, then on self. It's founded upon a miraculous and unlimited means of resources. And it helps us prioritize our lives and affections and keep our faith focused. Now, faith is a central theme in biblical giving. The thing is this, the financial system of this world says, I need to get what I can. I need to put some away. I need to invest it or do these kinds of things so that my money can generate more money. And there's, you know, the Bible also says this, money answereth all things. What does that mean? 
That means that this world system runs on money, and money can get you a long way. You can do a lot within this world and in this world systems with money. But the kingdom of God's thinking is very different. It's not about just getting what I can so that I can save up to have more. It's about putting such faith in God that I'm saying, God, I'm going to give away what I've got so that you can give me less. Completely counterintuitive. Where people also struggle on this subject is the flip side of this. I don't want to give to receive because then my motive is wrong. And if you think that as well, you've also not properly understood the principle of sowing and reaping. Because God has given that to us to use by faith. So you understand from both angles of this thing, we need to find this, this central path and, and find out what it is that God actually is saying about our financial welfare and the systems and the principles He's putting in place so that we can't apply our faith to them and use them and walk in them and see the good of them applied and manifested in our lives. Let's talk about the heart of giving. The heart behind all New Testament giving is thankfulness, faith, and generosity. Thankfulness, gratitude. So this is the heart, this is the, the initial motive behind our giving. And this is where I wouldn't agree with you. I know, where I do agree with you, I wouldn't just give to, to receive. Then if that's the only reason I'm doing it, no, 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 then, then I agree with you, my heart is wrong there. But it's gratitude, faith, because I'm believing God to provide and to give me a return on my harvest, and generosity. Here's an interesting... Now, what we often talk about concerning giving, and remember I said to you earlier on, what is the measure that God uses when He looks at how generously we give? For the measure you use is the measure that will be measured back to you. It has to do with cost and heart. How generous are you in your giving? How generous is your heart? Are you trying to give to appease a law, to appease somebody, but you, you actually really want to hold on to Where is your heart in this? Do you give freely, generously with liberality? Or is there something in your heart that's going on that's causing you to hold back? One thing I've heard very often is people say, if I had more money, I would give more. But I want to say to you that the financial principles and systems of God's kingdom don't work that way. The financial systems of God's kingdom say this, he who is faithful with little will be faithful also with much. But he who is not faithful with little will not be faithful with much. This idea that, oh, I'll give a full tithe if I had more to give, that's just not scriptural. This idea that I'll give more if I have more, it's just not scriptural. And here's the other thing. It's also not true. On the screen, you'll see a... This is based on South African statistics on averages as of giving as a percentage of income. And this is just interesting numbers, but it tells a story. Those who earn on average under 12,500 Rand per month give on average about 7.7% of their income away. Those who earn between 12,500 and 25,000 Rand per month only give 4.8%, 4 so not even 5% of their income. This is on average, okay? 25 to 37 and a half, 3.5. 37 and a half to 50,000, 3. 50,000 to 100,000 rand. You think, hey, man, if I was earning that kind of salary, I'd be doing pretty well. I'd be able to afford to give quite a bit away. Those, those folks in that category only give about 2.6% of their salary away. Let me ask you, what measure are they using? They're using numbers and figures. 
I'm giving a lot. But in terms of cost and percentage, how is it really? It's still a, you know, you understand? It goes up again from those who are earning over 100,000 rand a month, 2.8 to 3% is what they're giving away on average. Uh, and this is charitable giving. This is giving to churches and, and those kinds of things. Interesting to statistics. So the fact in this point of, yeah, well, if I had more, I'd give more. Why am I mentioning this to you? Because what you could have is irrelevant to what you do have. When it comes to managing our finances and when it comes to understanding biblical concepts of giving, it's not about what I will do with what I could have. It's about, God, what am I doing with what I've got? That's the principle of stewardship. And if we miss this principle, we're going to be like the, the guy who hid his money in the ground. Oh, Lord, I knew you to be a hard ruler. I didn't think that you were going to provide or I wasn't sure about this. It says something about our relationship, our trust, and our heart. So the heart of giving, as I said, we give out of a heart of gratitude for the blessing we have received from God, first and foremost. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. It's a matter of heart. Not grudgingly or of necessity. This is, this, this is one of the reasons. I've never seen this in another church until I came to this church. Why we do not send an offering or basket around every single Sunday. We don't, and we also don't send it around the congregation. If you have something and you're ready, you come up and you place it in the basket. If you don't, no judgment on you at all. Because how many of you have been in that situation where the plate comes around and you saw what so-and-so did and you saw what so-and-so gave and you can feel the eyes on you when that place comes to you? There's a pressure to perform, man. I remember when I was a child, my mom sent me to church. I went to a friend's church, Enchirkerk. It's a very formal church, and the, for the children, as the children left, they went into another hall, and as you went into the hall, you gave your collection. And I took out my coin that my mom gave me, but I didn't realize that stuck in my finger was also the 10 rand note that my mom gave me, and so I threw it in the, and they both went in. <laughs> so I took my 10 rand out again. But did I get glared at? <laughs> Are you allowed to take change out of the offering plate? I don't know. <laughs> I want to give five rand. I've only got a tenner. I'll just do a little. <laughs> the Lord gave you. <laughs> the point is this. God loves a cheerful giver. Why does God? Now think about this. God loves it. It doesn't say uh, God loves it when we give cheerfully. Why? Because it mirrors his nature. God is a cheerful giver. Amen? And when we give with joy in our hearts, we mirror the heart of our God. One of the primary reasons God wants His people to walk in blessing is so that they are empowered to express His nature of generosity and benevolence. And then we start getting to a deeper understanding of, of what prosperity is really all about in a kingdom culture and in a kingdom setting. 2 Corinthians 9.8 And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So in other words, I want to take care of all of your needs, your relational, emotional, financial, spiritual, occupation. I want to take care of all of your needs, but I want to take care of all of your needs in such a way that in every one of those areas of your life, you have more than you need so that you can give away to others. That's the generosity of God. 
The Word of God teaches that our giving should be. And these things, I think, are very, very powerful principles concerning financial management. Number one, structured, budgeted for, and planned. That's called stewardship. Number two, purposeful. When we give, we give with purpose, with vision. It's not just giving because it's the thing to do, but I give with vision and understanding, knowing that my money is doing something. When I give, my money communicates something. Money is like time. If you spend time with somebody, that time you spend communicates something. It ministers into their life. And when you give money, that money communicates something. When I give my money to God, it communicates devotion. It communicates gratitude. It communicates faith. I give it with purpose. And thirdly, our giving must be faithful. Romans 14, 23. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Now you could say it comes from gratitude. It comes from all these things. We give in faith. Structured, purposeful, and faith-filled. I have learned from Pastor Andreas over these years the joy and the wisdom of structured giving. I have seen over the years how when certain needs crop up, he is able to meet needs through structured, purposeful giving. In other words, he has in various ways, I don't want to go into his financial things, I don't know all of it, but I, I understand that certain, he has pockets. And he's taught me the wisdom of this. So, there's two principles involved in this. The one is, there's a scripture which says, I forget exactly where it is. Um, hold on. Just hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Deuteronomy 28.8 The Lord will command the blessing on your storehouses and, into all to which you set, and in all to which you set your hand. He will bless you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. Deuteronomy 28.8 And he said to me one day, Michael, if you don't have storehouses, where's God going to bless you? And I started thinking about that. And it led me to open separate banking accounts that, that I can start using, because this is, this is his wisdom, and I've seen him do this. He sets aside, structured from what he gets, a percentage goes there, a percentage goes there, a percentage goes there. So Megan suddenly comes along, and she's this down-and-out young lady, no mommy, no daddy, this is an example. And she comes along, and she's now devoted her heart to Jesus, but she's got nobody really to give her a leg up in life. Can't drive. You know how many people I have seen go through driving lessons, get their driving licenses, just get a leg up. Where does that money come from? Some provision has been made. So when a need arises and God says to him, I want you to bless that, how many times has God laid on your heart to bless somebody and you don't have the means to do it? Right? This is what I'm saying. If we are clever and wise and smart about our giving, that we allocate money that is just for giving. Sometimes you give it. Sometimes you just allocate it for giving until the need arises. I know some people, the way they like to do this is they keep a hundred grand notes in their wallet that's not theirs. 
4,000 rand in your wallet. The, um, um, who wrote that, that book about the grapevine? Uh, and, and I thought it was about the Prairie Jabez as well. What's his name? He wrote a book called, it's an orange cover. Wilkinson. What is the book called? I've got it in my bookshelf there. Anyway, he, he, he talks about the goodness of God and just generosity and giving. And he says he has a certain amount in his wallet that he keeps there. And he adds to it every month. And sometimes that can end up to hundreds of dollars. And it's just there until God speaks to him. And he says what he does in that is he makes provision for giving and sowing seed, but he also sets himself up to be led by the Spirit of God. It means that he's going about his day looking for opportunities to give and be a blessing. I've tried that. It works. It's great fun. You understand? So th there's many, many, many creative ways to get this working in our lives. And it doesn't always have to start with thousands. It doesn't. In fact, I'm going to tell you straight, it doesn't start with thousands and thousands of rand. It starts with just being wise. Structure your giving according to biblical principles. Put away, make provision for blessing so that you have an abundance for every good work. So that you, I think it was Kenneth Copeland who said this. He said, there is one thing better than meeting the man of God. That meet, there's one thing better than meeting the man who God has sent to provide for your need. And that is being the man that God sent. Sorry? Stanford Gerald also says that. I probably got it from Copeland, though. <laughs> I think I got that. that. That one, I'm pretty sure, is Copeland. There's one thing better than meeting the man that God has sent to you to meet your needs, and that's being that man. But you can't be that man if you're not... You, you understand the principle I'm trying to convey with you here tonight. Our hearts begin to shift in a way where we actually start planning financially to be a blessing, stewarding what God has given us in such a way that it can accumulate, maybe even invest it, so that you can just give it away. It's not yours. It's given already. All right. Let's talk about God's pattern for giving now. God has given us a threefold pattern for giving. This means that there are three different types of giving mentioned in the Bible. Namely, first fruits, tithes, and that's plural, and offerings. Now, concerning these, tonight with this first session, we are going to talk primarily about first fruits. We'll have a little break and we'll go through tithes and offerings. Most of you have been exposed to this teaching before. I will, I'm not going to go too deep in elaboration because I think for me, once again tonight, the thing that really is important for me is the heart of all of this. But we read in Nehemiah 12, 44, looking in the Old Testament, it says, At the same time, some were appointed over the, storerooms, over the rooms of the storehouses for the offerings, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them in from the fields of the cities and the portions uh, specified by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. We see some clear distinctions here. First fruits, tithes, and offerings. Not the same thing. Three distinct areas or patterns of giving. We also see two distinct recipients here. Priests and Levites. And all of this is going to become more clear or clearer as we go through. It's important to note that first fruits and tithes are not the same thing. We've just, we've just covered that. We will see that this pattern caters for all spheres of life. Number one, the man of God or spiritual oversight. You know, in my notes, I've even already scratched that word out. <laughs> and it's not because it's wrong. Talking about the man of God in my life is not wrong. I, I, I do often talk about that. But the stigma that now goes with 
man of God, and he's the man of God. Oh, it just makes me sick to my stomach. I love what Tony Fitzgerald says on this. He says, I'm not some mighty man of God. I'm just an ordinary man who serves a mighty God. And that's, that's the heart. But we do recognize that there are people who play a role in our lives, that God has set in place fivefold ministry gifts to minister to us and to invest in our lives spiritually, our spiritual oversight. God's pattern for giving also covers the church, the organizational mechanism of the church, if I can put it that way, the governmental mechanism. It covers yourself, you and your family. What? That's right. God's system of giving includes you, your well-being, and your children. It covers the poor, the widow, and the orphan. And it also casts an eye on inheritance as well as government, social government. Really? The giving of God? It covers all of that? Yeah. We're going to look at it tonight. First thing we're going to start off with is first fruits. Let's get some history and understand the background of first fruits. Number one, with every agricultural crop, there is a portion that ripens before the rest of the harvest. This portion is called the first fruit. The term first fruit was applied both to the portion of the harvest that ripened first as well as to the firstborn from a womb. In the Old Testament, God gave special instructions to his people as to what he wanted them to do with first fruits. Understanding the practices and promises that were associated with the giving of first fruits in the Old Covenant lays a foundation for how we understand the principle in our new covenant life. So, folks, principles, you could say, are governing laws. So we understand the principle or the law of gravity. It governs what happens with physical objects on the earth. So if I hold this here and I let it go, you all know exactly what's going to happen. It's going to fall. Should we give it a try? It fell. Anybody surprised? No. God's sense of If God made me, he has a, a strong sense of humor, I'm sure. And one day I am going to do that. And God's going to just catch me out, just for a split second, just to say, I wait for it. I wait for it every time. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so what I'm saying to you is this. We're going to look at the Old Covenant to look at the laws and the principles that work, because those laws and those principles carry us right through into the New Covenant, into today. When we understand the heart and the principle of something, we can make it work. Because I understand, because we as mankind understand gravity, we understand flight. Because we understand, by understanding the laws that govern gravity, we understand the laws that give context for us to understand the laws of thrust and lift. Do you understand? So it opens up things for us. The first fruit was to be given to God. So that's the first thing. It goes to God as an offering by lifting it up to him and then placing it in the hands of the priest. So it was called a first fruit offering. It was also called a wave offering because you would literally, the, the way that they would give it, and the way some people still give first fruits into rumors these days is this. They would lift it up to the Lord. They would wave it in front of him. It's called a wave offering. It's also called a heave offering because sometimes they brought animals and to get that up above your head, you have to heave it. So it's called a heave offering. Not really. But wave offerings, heave offerings, thanksgiving offerings, they're all different kinds of offerings. But when those offerings were given and lifted up to God and placed in the hands of a priest, that offering became what is called a teruma, a most holy offering. 
a first fruits offering. This is terminology. I don't want to get you lost in it because it's not necessarily the point. It can create more confusion than, than because they had a complex system of giving and lots of different names for different things. But the point is this. It was lifted up to God and placed in the hands of the priest. And in doing so, a blessing was inferred on the giver and on his whole household. We see here Nehemiah 10, 35 to 37. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord, to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of the Lord, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites. The Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. So you, again, you see clearly here the distinction and how first fruits and to whom first fruits should be given, as well as the tithes. The first fruits were to be given to the priests, whereas the tithes were to be given to the Levites, the tribe of Levi. Uh, just so you understand, 12 tribes of Israel, 11 of them could own land, but God said of the Levites, I don't want them to own land. I don't want them to be consumed about making a living for themselves. I want them to be focused on temple work and on being shepherds, in effect, for the people of Israel. So he commanded all the other tribes to give their first fruits to the priests, their tithes to the tribe of Levi as an eternal inheritance, an everlasting inheritance. Now, if that's an eternal inheritance, how could it have died at the cross? But there's a portion that God wanted because He didn't want His people, his, those His servants, those focused on representing Him and ministering to His people to be caught up in having to make a living and worried about making a living for themselves. I've seen so many people, Andreas travels to Cyprus often, as you know, and the culture there is very much that those who, who minister do so for their own, you know, out of, the, out of the goodness of their own heart. Giving is not a big deal over there, and most of them need to work to support themselves. And I want to tell you something. The church suffers as a result. You look at the early church where Paul says to, where the apostles say, not Paul, where the apostles say, they're coming to them with problems about this and that sort of thing. And he says, look, we, we need to be giving ourselves to the study of the word and to prayer. Pick people from among yourselves. They understood the principle of being separated to function and, and to focus on that which God called them to focus on. And so that's the same principle that's running through here. Let's carry on. Exodus 25, 2. Speak to the children of Israel that they must bring me an offering, first fruits. That word there is teruma, from everyone who gives it willingly. There you see it again. From everyone who gives it willingly. So even under the law, he says, receive the first fruit from everyone who comes to give it willingly. With his heart, you the priest shall take my offering. Moses, uh, Moses 31. Numbers 31, verse 41. So Moses gave the tribute, which was the Lord's heave offering, to Eleazar the priest, as the Lord commanded Moses. So we see Moses walking in this principle. The principle that is behind the giving of first fruits is twofold. Number one, to express gratitude to God by honoring his representative, the priest, and to release the bless, God's blessing, not just upon your life, but upon your whole household, the 
children, family, and vocation. Let's see how that works itself out. Ezekiel 44.30 The best of all the first fruits and of all your special gifts will belong to the priest. You are to give them the first portion of your ground meal so that a blessing may rest upon your household. So they understood that blessing, financial blessing on their household was inferred through the giving of the first fruits to God by placing it in the hands of the priest. Proverbs 3, 9 to 10. Honor the Lord, and we're going to get to that principle a little bit later. That's important. Honor the Lord. How? With your wealth and with the first fruits of your crops or your income. Then your barns will be abundantly filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Folks, let's just pause for a second here. It may sound cold to say this, but it's not. When you understand the heart behind it and the faith and all the other things we've discussed and will continue to discuss, all of that, become, that, that is part of our giving and is part of scriptural uh, stewardship and faith in God and trust in Him. But you need to understand, you cannot read these scriptures without seeing them as, in a measure, transactional. If you give, you will get a blessing. Do you see that? Bear with me. We are still in the Old Covenant here. All right? We are still in the Old Covenant here. But what about those scriptures I read earlier on? Give and it will be given to you. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. What does that tell you? It tells you that in the same way that God says, if you do not forgive, I will not forgive you. In the same way that God says, he says this, if you do not give generously and bless, I can... I won't give and generously bless you. Does God withhold forgiveness? No, it's just we can't partake of forgiveness and then not give it away. There's a principle locked into that, that if we don't engage with the principle of forgiveness, we cannot receive and walk in it. And likewise, with generosity and blessing, if we do not engage in the principle, we cannot partake in receiving it. You with me? Let's carry on. It's important to note that the first fruits and not the tithe was associated with the blessing to come upon the household. And here we have a wonderful example of this in the account of Elijah with the widow of Zarephath. It beautifully outlines the principle of the first fruits offering. So let's have a read through this. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 8 to 15. It says this. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please, bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Talk about a morbid picture here. But this is all this woman had left. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. So in other words, what is he invoking in her? Faith. 
Well done, Lorraine. Yes, he's invoking faith. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterwards, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. Let's read what I've written here. There are interesting lessons to note from this portion of Scripture. Elijah may seem rather unsympathetic towards this woman's plight in asking that she make him some bread from the little she had left. Either he lacked any kind of empathy or he understood a spiritual principle. The evidence of the story tells us what it was. It wasn't that Elijah was so arrogant and uncompassionate about this woman, well, she's going to die anyway. I might as well enjoy the food and live. That wasn't his attitude at all. He was calling her to give of something, even from the little that she had, a first fruit, so that the blessing of God could come on all that she had left. If you give the first fruits to the man of God in your life, the rest of what you have will be blessed. That's the principle. Elijah calls this woman to honor that principle. She does, and the oil and flour continue to last until the rain It's gone. It's gone. So do you see how that principle works itself out there? Now let's look at Christ. And we follow on the same principle of the first fruits, even though it's demonstrated in a different area in a different way. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 and 23. I'll read it from the Amplified Bible. It says, But now, as things really are, Christ has, in fact, been raised from the dead, and He became the first fruits." That is, the first to be resurrected with an incorruptible, immortal body foreshadowing the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep in death. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then those who are Christ's own will be resurrected, incorruptible, immortal bodies at his coming. Through Jesus Christ, our firstfruit, the life and blessing of God has come upon all who believe. Why is that? Here's the principle. Once the first fruit is lifted up to God and blessed and placed in the hands of the priest, that blessing comes upon the whole lump, right? Jesus Christ, our first fruit, was given, rose again, is blessed, so that everybody who associates with him, the whole lump receives that blessing. Everything that Jesus is, you and I are today. Everything that Jesus has is available to you and I today. We receive the fullness of his inheritance. Why? Because he is our first fruit, the first of those to be born again. Amazing. Romans eleven sixteen says it this way. If the first portion of dough offered as the first fruits is holy, so is the whole batch. And if you, the root Abraham, the patriarchs, Sorry, and if the root, Abraham, the patriarchs, is holy, so are the, bat, the branches, the Israelites. In the same way that Israel became blessed and holy through Abraham, through the covenant God made with Abraham, Christians today experience the blessing and holiness through Christ. All that we do in giving of our first fruits is apply our faith to this principle, to activate it 
in our lives. Biblical giving requires faith. Amen? And faith requires action. So what we do, our new covenant perspective of this changes a little bit, but the principle remains the same. As recipients and conduits of this blessing, we can flavor and bless those who sow into our lives spiritually. This is like an everlasting covenant of salt. Numbers 18, 19 talks about this, with two lives flavoring one another by what they present to each other. God, through our spiritual oversight, flavors and ministers His wisdom, guidance, and blessing into our lives as much as we're able to receive it. As an act of gratitude, we lift our first fruits to Him and give it to flavor and bless the lives of our spiritual oversight. Isn't that a beautiful thing? The principle is one of honor. When we give first fruits, we give to somebody. We do not pay our first fruits to somebody. We give them with gladness and gratitude in our hearts. And there are many scriptures in the New Testament that speak of honoring and blessing those in spiritual authority in our lives with our substance. You shall not muzzle the ox, etc. Et There's so many. I've listed them all there for you. 1 Corinthians 9, 7 to 11. 1 Corinthians 9, 14. Galatians 6, 6. 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. Philippians 4, 15 to 19. It speaks about this principle over and over again of honor. It's easy to see that as the principle of giving first fruits is applied and works itself out in the life of the believer, that it goes far beyond money. It ensures God's protection on the rest of one's income. It is a means of expressing faith for God's blessing, releasing it over one's household. It positions the giver to receive revelation from the Lord, seasoning one's life, and it deepens one's relationship with the spiritual oversight in their life. And this has very positive implications in the area of father-son, mother-daughter relationships. Let me draw for you another analogy, just, to, just to, 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 to get our perspective right. There was somebody in our church many years ago, and when he came to our church and, and, was, and became a member, he said, look, as the pastors, I want you to know something. I don't believe in the principle of tithing, but I'm not going to cause a ruckus on it. I just want you to know where I stand, that I don't embrace this principle because I see it to be an old covenant thing. And we said, that's fine. We respect you. That doesn't, you know, we don't excommunicate people for that. You're still part of the body. You're still blessed. Everything we have is still yours. There was no issue with that. We respected his, his point of view. Until one day, I spoke about Malachi chapter 3. And we'll get to that a little bit later on tithing. I don't know why I'm, uh, there's a reason I'm bringing this up now. Because our understanding and our point of view is very important when we come to first fruits, tithes, and offerings. I spoke about Malachi chapter 3, which talks about tithes. It says, if you pay the tithe, Try me now in this. See if I'll not pour out for you such a blessing that you have not room enough to contain it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. Now that's true. That's true in the old covenant setting. But how do I fit that into my life now as a new covenant believer? I can't. I can't fit that thinking into my life that if I don't tithe, Satan's going to get me. I heard somebody, Andrew Womack, I think it was recently say, that makes God sound like he's, he's the godfather in the mafia. I'll offer you protection services if you give me 10% of your income. But if you don't, I can't guarantee that you'll even keep what you got. No, God doesn't work that way. In the new covenant, I don't have to do something to be blessed. In the new covenant, I am already blessed. 
in the new covenant, I don't have to give money so that the devourer is, de de devourer is rebuked. In the new covenant, my devourer is not only rebuked, he is defeated. So what does tithing and these things come into, come into my life? The principles of sowing and reaping still work. And the principles that started way before the law, came through the law and right into the New Testament still have their operation. But my perspective is very different. Let me ask you this. When does Jesus heal you? On the cross, right? 2,000 years ago. Do you believe in healing today? Right? So healing is available for all of us. Amen. Do we all sometimes get sick? Does that mean that what happened at the cross didn't happen? Does that mean that healing isn't still working today? No, what it does mean is that I need to have a revelation on the subject of healing in terms of how to believe God for it, how to apply my faith. And I need to do something to apply my faith to receive healing. Amen? It belongs to me. It is mine. It is freely available. It is being given completely. And the same principle is true with the blessing of God. How do I engage with that blessing? Well, one of the ways. I don't understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying the way. I'm saying one of the ways. And the primary way is by applying the principles that I see in Scripture right from the beginning that run right through the cross into the new covenant, and I still see them working there. Honoring those financial principles by faith means that I am attributing faith that as I give, God's going to keep blessing. I attract that blessing. I get the momentum working. I get the principle working, and it continues to grow in my life from glory to glory to glory. When it comes to first fruits, it's the same principle. I don't give first fruits so that the blessing will come upon everything. Then it's just a mechanical transaction. But I believe that God's blessing is there and it's freely available. I engage with that blessing by faith through the giving of the first fruits. And in so doing, I also honor the man of God who blesses me and ministers into my life so that he can be blessed. It's a beautiful principle. Let's quickly look at first fruits giving in the New Testament and then we take a break. How's your stamina? Are you guys okay? Can we do a couple more pages and then take a break? All right, let's finish through, through this section. As Israel shifted from an agricultural to a more vocational society, they asked, how can we honor first fruits offerings with our wages and salaries? After measuring various fields, rabbis determined that between a 40th and a 60th of the total crop came up before the rest as first fruit. So what they would do is the harvest time came, they would measure how much the first fruit was. Then when the harvest came, they would measure how much that was, and they'd see what percentage the first fruit was in relation to the total harvest. Do you understand? And the first fruit was between 1 40th and 1 60th. Not between 40 and 60 percent, but a 40th is 2.5 percent, and a 60th is 1.67 percent. So it's a very small portion of the total harvest that came up first as the first fruit. Some notable documents and teachings dating back to when Jesus was alive and the development of the early church tell us a lot about how first fruits was practiced back then. So understand, what am I doing now? I've explained the principles of first fruits to you in the old covenant setting. We're now going to start bringing it through into the new covenant and seeing how it was applied during Jesus' time, what he said about it, and in the early church, and then we're going to pick it up our heart on that as I've already half articulated to you just a moment ago. 
Let's look at some historical insights. Number one, the Didache, it was written in about 80 AD, and it's the teaching of the 12 apostles to the first century church. Now understand, I, I know that this is not scripture, but it gives us an insight into what they were doing in those early days all the same. The Didache has a chapter devoted to the giving of first fruits, and, uh, first fruits offerings. Part of the chapter says, if you have a pastor, now note, I've written a note there, the original says a prophet, but it implies someone who shepherds people and teaches them concerning the word of God. Somebody who's putting the word of God in you and teaching you and raising you and shepherding you according to the word of God. So you could say prophet, you could say pastor. For most of us, the context would be a pastor. If you have a pastor who is willing to live among you and teach you the word and sow into your spirit, He's worthy of your first fruits offering. If you don't, then give your first fruits to the poor. The inference here, the inference here is that whatever you do, just don't eat your first fruits. Give, make sure you give your first fruits. Make sure you're putting that principle into play. If you don't have a man of God to bless, give it to the poor. Whatever you do, don't spend it on yourself. There's blessing attached to that. There's significance attached to the giving away of your first and of your best. That God, there's something beautiful in that that God honors. Then we have the Mishnah, which is also a combination of rabbinical law and commentary on the Old Testament scriptures and was written about 180 AD. The fourth volume is thick and all on first fruits. And this indicates that first fruits were still being practiced by Jews beyond Jesus' time on earth. This is significant because it means that it would have been standard practice during his time on earth. Does that make sense? So this was standard practice within Jewish life while Jesus lived. And then we have Hillel who was a notable Jewish religious leader. Again, let me just give you some insight here, the note at the bottom. Hillel is one of the most important figures in Jewish history as he is associated with the development of the Mishnah and the Talmud. He oversaw the biggest rabbinical school in Israel and died while Jesus was still a young man. So he lived in the same era. If, he said, if a person honors first fruits offering at a 40th level, his eye is said to be full of light. If he honors first fruits offering at a 50th level, his eye is said to be a middling eye. And if he honors first fruits offering at a 160th level, that person has an evil eye. People who didn't give first fruits at all were considered infidels, a very serious accusation. Now remember that your eye is full of light and your eye is full of darkness. That should ring a bell to you because Jesus spoke about that. And we've often made that to mean uh, what, you, what you observe or what you put into you will fill you with light or with darkness. But we're going to get in a moment to see the context of what Jesus is actually saying. Jesus didn't spend much time teaching on either first fruits or tithes while on earth because both were standard practices amongst Jewish people he primarily ministered to. He does, however, make reference to them in various places. One of the greatest confirmations of first fruits teaching in the New Testament is recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 6, 19-24. Don't store up treasures on earth where moth, moths eat and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. What is he talking about here? Money, right? Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there, your, there the desires of your heart will be also. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light to your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body will be filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be filled with darkness. 
And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God. Sorry, for you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. What is the context of that portion of Scripture? He's talking about the love of money. And it's interesting because we kind of think he's talking about the love of money, then he kind of just breaks and he talks about eyes and light and darkness, and then he comes back to talking about money. Why do we think that? Because we misunderstand what he's referring to concerning the eye and the spirit of generosity. Viewed in the context of the rabbinical teaching outlined above, it's easy to see that Jesus is referring to first fruits. The message is your generosity flows like a lamp into the body that will bring revelation to your whole being. Stinginess will bring the reverse, and it will make you so self-centered that you will not be able to think of anyone else. It has to do with the spirit and the heart of generosity and blessing. If your eye is full of light, it's filled with revelation, it's filled with understanding, and it's filled with generosity, desiring to give and to bless and to honor these principles. Let's ask some key questions concerning first fruits blessings. Number one, do you want to release and experience God's blessing over your life? Everyone would say, yes, please, I do. What are you giving him to work with? So if we look at Elijah and the example, he said, woman, I want you to give me a piece of bread first. Give me something to work with. If we look at Elisha and the woman with the oil, what have you got? I have nothing, just a little bit of oil. He says, that's enough. Just give me something to work with. What are we giving God to work with? We want the blessing, Lord. God says, great, I want to bless you. Give me something to work with. Do you truly value those he has sent to train you in his ways? And how are you showing that? Let me give you just a couple of personal examples before we go on. I had a youth leader who was tremendously influential. I had two youth leaders that were very in instrumental in my life. The first one just showed faith in me in a very young age. I struggled with insecurity as a young man. And just his being there, his showing trust in me, spoke volumes to my life. And a couple of years ago, I phoned, I've managed to find these details via somebody, via somebody, via somebody. And I said, I just want to tell you how much what you did meant to me. And you made a tremendous impact on my life that I, it still has an indelible mark on my life today. And I just want to bless you. Would you please just send me your banking details? And he did, and I was able to give him first fruits and just give him honor that month. And it, it said something to him. It ministered to him. Wow, I actually made an impact in that young man's life. There's another guy who was a youth leader who he, he had to discipline me in the church. I was living a double life. There's no secret in this congregation. You knew I was living a double life at that stage. And um, he disciplined me. They found out about some stuff that, was going, that I was doing behind the scenes. I, had an, I, I was in a relationship. I had a girlfriend who wasn't a Christian. And they came and they said to me, Michael, you're a youth leader. You're playing in the worship team. This is not the example that you can set as a leader. So you need to decide. Do you want to have this girlfriend who's not part of our church? We don't know her, nothing. Or do you want to be in leadership? They weren't excommunicating me, but they said, if you want to be in leadership here, you've got to do things right. And I value and respect them. They did it in such love and with such grace. And they, this, this youth leader met with me, and it was hard for him to do it. I could see. And the next time he met, he met with me with an elder of the church and said, Michael, 
We're giving you an opportunity to rectify the situation. This is your choice, but we can't let you stay indefinitely in a position of leadership if you're not prepared to set your life right. And eventually they said, right, we're going we're gonna to remove you from all leadership positions. So no, you're not a youth leader anymore. You can't play in the worship team in church anymore. Out of shame, I left. Not angry, not bitter. The only one I was angry with was my friend who ratted me out. But I was ashamed. I didn't go back to the church for two or three weeks simply because of circumstances. My folks went away, we were in caravanning, and then this happened and that, whatever. And then I just never went back again. I was ashamed. And it led to a, a period of my life of probably almost a year and a half, two years. I'll just backstand. I just walk, walked away from the Lord and all of that. Why am I telling you all of this? Years, 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 and years later, I managed to get this guy's number. And I say to him, you know, I just want to tell you what an impact you had in my life. And I wanted to apologize for what I put you through. And I just want to bless you. And would you please send me your banking details? I just, I want to bless you. I want to say thank you and tell you and give you honor for the role you played in my life that you love me enough to correct me. And I could hear he was tearing up on the other side of the phone because, oh, sorry, because he said that, you know, he, he, him and his wife were just talking that morning. His wife had just been through a rough time. She'd gotten some other physical condition when she gave birth to her, her, to her second child that, that rendered her not quite bedridden, but not far from it for the first three or four years of their, of their childhood. And she was slowly getting her strength back. And they were just at about the stage where he thought he could take her away for a weekend, but they didn't have the money to do so. And this kind of, they, would talk, they spoke that morning about it, and there was my phone call. I tell you these things not to give myself, look what I did, these things. I'm showing you the, the principle of, of the blessing that can be ministered through honoring of first fruits is huge. It's huge. The fact that somebody phoned from his past and said to him, you really, I, I bless you. I thank you. It moves a man. He says, you know, you don't hear this. You don't hear. You don't know the impact you make. You hope for fruit. You sow the seed. Somebody else will water. Somebody else will reap a harvest. You know the principles are in the Bible, and we don't do it for that. But to have somebody come back, it's like those lepers. Ten lepers were healed. Two came back and said thank you. Two came back and gave first fruits. And I say that in inverted commas, because what did they do? They put the principle in place. The first thing they did after they went healed they came and gave thanks, and they gave honor to the man of God. Do you understand the principle? Let's just round out this little section of this page. It's clear to see that the practice of first fruits giving was still widely applied at the time of Jesus, passed through the cross, and was still being widely applied in the early church. Over time, and as the church became more institutionalized, this practice was largely abandoned, though the principle remains eternal. Those who apply and live out the first fruits principle will attest to the blessing it has produced in all areas of their lives. When I was doing research one day on the subject, I came across this article that was written by Mr. S or Dr. S. Y. Governor. I have no idea who he is, but his, his words captured my heart and moved me so deeply that I saved that document and I, 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 for this exact purpose, that when teaching on the subject, I could read this, read his words. In giving my first fruit, I want to break the prejudice against the prosperity of the servant of God. Many rejoice in the poverty of God's servants. God rejoices in the prosperity of his servants. I want God's servant and his family to rejoice. I want them to know that their services are highly valued. I say to them, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In addition, I am realizing that their function is different from all other believers. All believers are priests, but not all are sent to me. I am recognizing the unique function of the one sent, or the sent one, sent to bless me and my family. You know my story in this church. Every month when it comes time for me to give my first fruits, you know, I've already said I don't always give them to Pastor Andreas, but most of the time I give them to Pastor Andreas. It doesn't take me long to think back of the journey and the impact that Pastor Andreas and Cristela have had on my life. I am largely who I am today because of, their, because of God's influence in my life through them, through their love and through their parenting. What kind of gift can I give to honor and, and say thank you enough for that? What, what, what kind of, of, of value can you place on that? You can't. You can't. And when I think about it, it's not long before I start getting choked up just at the gratitude I have to God for them. So to bless them is just a joy. And, like, and, and to bless other people who just minister to my life and give them honor. And I want to say this to you. In the giving of first fruits, it's not about the giving of the money. It's about the communication in the giving of the money. It's about the heart. The right way to give first fruits is not just to send an EFT, and there it is, it's done. I've done my job. I've, done my, I've, given, I've given my first fruits. You take your money, and you go put it in somebody's hand, and you look them in the eye, and you say, you have just blessed me, and you mean the world to me. I want to thank God for you, and I thank God for what he's doing in my life through you, and I, bless, I want to honor you. I want you to know that you're valuable to me, and you're important, and I bless you. I really appreciate you. If you can't do that, you send a text and you, you say something. If you can't do that, you send an email. You say something. It's not about the money. Then it's just a transaction. You fulfilled your duty. If you can't convey honor in the giving of first fruits, don't give it. Do you understand what I'm saying to you here? It's about the value that you put in somebody else because of the role that they play in your life. This has brought such blessing to me in my life. Never mind the financial blessing side of it. Just the blessing of being able to have a means through which I can articulate regularly appreciation and gratitude. Man, it makes your heart swell. It's awesome. Amen? Let's have a break. There we go. All right. There's not a lot more to get through tonight, folks. So let's talk about the tithe. I've already discussed um, some of the principles of New Testament thinking when we look at and approach the tithe. But let's look at what it means uh, in Scripture. First of all, the word tithe literally means one-tenth or ten percent. So again, that when, we, when we look at God's principles for giving, He doesn't work with figures. He works with percentages, with measures. The giving of a tithe, therefore, means the giving of ten percent of one's gross income once first fruits have been deducted. Now, the maths of this whole thing, which is where we so often get stuck, I will show you a little bit later. We've got a graph and build it all out for you. This section is written from the traditional belief that tithing, both Old and New Testament, forms part of our covenant with God and therefore needs to be honored in faith. Again, Romans 14, 23, whatever is not of faith is sin. So you can think you're doing a great thing by tithing or not tithing. If you, if you tithe... You've got to do it by faith. And if you don't tithe, you've got to not tithe by faith. 
The first occurrence of tithing, and this is really, really pivotal to us understanding, there's, there's something in, in hermeneutics. Uh, hermeneutics is study of theology, study of the Bible, of the scriptures. It's a, it's a principle called the law of first mention. When a principle or something is mentioned for the first time in Scripture, generally that first reference gives us the key to unpacking what it means and how it works and sets out the principles and the systems within that, within that thing that you're looking at. So if we apply that hermeneutical law to, to looking at the tithe, we see something that's really, really important. And that is this. The tithe was given and became... Was, people were functioning in the principle of the tithe long before the law came along. That although the law is part of, or tithing does form part of the law, it wasn't born in the law. The first occurrence of tithing in the Bible was not a result of a divine decree, a law that was passed, or a requirement for righteousness. Rather, it was an act of gratitude and worship towards God. This is important to note. Excuse me, the sneeze. It wants to come, but it doesn't. Forgive me, I'm sorry. I have to edit this out, Siobhan, sorry. This is very important to note, as many today believe that the practice of tithing simply formed part of Mosaic law and is therefore no longer relevant today. Abraham instituted the principle as an act that expressed his faith in God as his source of provision, protection, and blessing. The fact that this act predicated God's promise to make Abraham the father of many nations, thus changing his, Abraham, changing his name to Abraham, is significant. This act revealed to God some, the, the, the heart of Abram, and it was like a catalyst that released something. Abram gave a tithe long before he was called Abraham, before God made real covenant with him. What does that tell us? It tells us that Abram's heart had already turned towards God. He had this wonderful victory, and he acknowledged God in it. And from the blessing and the reward of that victory, he gave a tenth to the Lord, to Melchizedek. While it's true that tithing did form part of the law of Moses, it's a principle that existed long before, flowed through the law, and is still as applicable today. Likewise, the promises associated with the tithe remain as we apply the principle in faith. So the promise associated with it remains as long as we apply the principle in faith. That's the key. Malachi 3 8 to 12, this is what I referred to earlier on. Will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me. Even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord. It's interesting to note that you can't rob somebody of something that belongs to them, right? That doesn't belong to them. You can't, I can't steal from you that which isn't yours. God is clearly stating here that the tithe of His people is holy. It is a set-aside portion that belongs to Him. It's part of the covenant relationship. 
in the understanding that he has it here. So again, we're talking about nation of Israel here, but it's part of the covenant. The tithe is the Lord's. Because God had specific purpose for it. The curse that came upon the people was because they had put their faith and trust elsewhere for their provision. Their failure to tithe is evidence that their heart had departed from the Lord. It was not God who had cursed them, but their abandonment of His principle had brought a curse upon themselves. God's concern is their hearts, not their money. Tithing has everything to do with faith and actually very little to do with money. It's about acknowledging God as our source and our provider and is about honoring God for blessing received. <laughs> it's interesting that when somebody picks up an offense in the church, the first thing to leave is their money. The first thing that they withhold is their money. And we see the same principle. This is what God's talking about here. You're withholding from me the tithe. What's going on? Their trust, their heart had departed from the Lord. Tithing in the new covenant is a practice whereby we acknowledge that what we have comes from the Lord and that giving our tithe is first and foremost an act of faith, honor, and allegiance. It acknowledges the covenant we have with Him. God wants food in His storehouse, provision for those who derive their livelihood by serving the people of God. The, the Levites, so to speak. This is the only place in the Bible where God calls us to test Him. He promises that if we honor the practice and principle of the tithe, He will pour out a blessing upon us. And this is what I was explaining to you a little bit earlier on. A new covenant understanding of the Scripture is that we are already blessed in Christ, but like appropriating healing or receiving salvation, an act of faith is required on our part. It is the giving of our tithes that aligns our lives with God's blessing, opening up the windows of heaven for it to flow freely. It's very interesting to note a couple of things here. Excuse me. What is the symbol that we've devoted our lives to Christ and we are born again? No. What is the act of faith we are required to take? Baptism. Baptism. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16. Right? So what does God require of us? An act of faith. An act that demonstrates something that's already taken place on the inside of our hearts. So you ask God, Jesus, I commit my life to you. He says, baptism. And I go through the waters. This is symbolic of death to my old man, newness of life in Christ Jesus. I put action to my faith. Likewise, we have the same principle when it talks about tithing. I am blessed and I put action to my faith. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's interesting, there's one thing that the scripture says, which I always misunderstood, where it talks in Malachi about, if I will not open up for you the windows of heaven. The beautiful thing about windows is that there are two ways. Not only can you see out of a window, but you can also see in through a window. We understand in some of our neighborhoods, the windows in the cars are very dark. They need to be down for you to see in. <laughs> God also promises that he will rebuke the devourer on our behalf. Again, as new covenant believers, the devourer has not merely been rebuked. He is defeated. The giving of our tithe enforces this victory in our finances and over our income. 
It's an act of faith in that victory. You see, if I don't believe in that victory, I have to do all I can to try and hold on to what I've got just in case, and I've got to be very careful about it. But if I believe that victory, I enforce that victory. You're not, I'm not worried about you. You don't have influence here. And I give it in faith. Finally, God will bless so abundantly that those around you will call you blessed. God longs to make you a delightful land. All of these wonderful promises come as a result of putting first things first. As we prioritize God and His kingdom on the earth, He in turn promises to pour out His blessing over us. Now again, are we not already blessed? Yes, we are. So by practicing these principles, we are engaging with that blessing that has already been given. Why? Because we receive nothing from God without faith. Everything we receive from God comes through faith. So we use our, these principles to express our faith. We attach our faith to them so that that blessing may flow and we invoke the working of that blessing. This is about a relationship with our loving Heavenly Father and putting our trust in Him. Now, just when you thought you'd heard enough about tithes, okay, so I've got to give 2.5% and then I've got to give 10%, I'm about to say, hey, man, did you know that the Bible talks about three different kinds of tithes? You're going, yo! So let's look at these tithes and what they are and what they represent. The first one is this. In the Old Covenant, the first tithe was given to the Levites. They were not given any land or means of income, and the tithe was their perpetual portion of inheritance. In the New Covenant, this portion is allocated to those who serve in full-time ministry. Why do I say full-time in inverted commas? Because technically we're all in full-time ministry. But certain people have devoted their lives to ministry giftings and to serving the body of Christ, to minister to the body. That's who we're talking about. The same as the Levites did. Given to the storehouse, that this tithe is given to the storehouse from which one is spiritually fed. So while it's perfectly fine for you to, you know, give offerings where you like, where you receive your spiritual nourishment, that's where your tithe belongs, to your spiritual home. And it's to be calculated on one's gross income, less first fruits. Again, the maths, we'll get to that in a minute. The second tithe. The second tithe was paid to yourself. That's very interesting. So in other words, once I paid my first tithe, I paid another tithe, but to myself. And this was used to make provision for, to travel for special feasts as well as to store up an inheritance for one's family. So you know, and they had to travel to Jerusalem for the feasts and they had to have these wonderful celebrations. And they weren't travel to, to Jerusalem for the fast. It was travel to Jerusalem for the feast. Those wonderful times of celebration with family where, we, where they celebrated the covenant with God and that they shared with one another. It was a time of celebration and giving. And they, they actually set money aside for that, to make provision for that. And for the family. The same principle applies to the second tithe today. We pay it to ourselves to cater for special family celebrations. Weddings, family holidays, special times of, of celebration and being together as well as providing an inheritance, both monetary and educational, for our children. You know what? You don't put money aside for your children's education. What are they going to have to do? They're going to have to take out a student loan, and you're gonna, they're going to they're gonna be hamstrung for the first 10 years of their working career, trying to put lives together, trying to get a marriage together, trying to get uh, 
you know, a career going, not just a career going, but a financial foundation while they've got debt to pay off. It's a huge disadvantage. If you can put your kids through school without, and, and tertiary education without them having to take out a loan, that's a wonderful blessing. That's a wonderful blessing. That's a privilege. That's, an, that, that's, that's certainly an advantage. Some people can't. It's not a, a blight on them, but what a blessing for those who can. Proverbs 13, 22. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children and his children's children. I must show that to my parents. My mom and dad said to me one day, my boy, all we're leaving you is memories. <laughs> <laughs> the third tithe. The third tithe. Now we get to the third tithe. The third tithe in the old covenant was that every third year, the second tithe, the tithe that you'd give to yourself, was given to the poor. And this would include the widow and the orphan. This means that the second and third tithe are actually the same thing. The difference is just where it goes. So you understand? So in their, in their agricultural system, they'd have a harvest this year. We obviously give the first fruits before the harvest. We get the harvest. A tenth of that harvest goes to the Levites, and a tenth of that harvest we store for ourselves. Okay? And we do that two years in a row. But the third year, instead of storing that for ourselves, we give that to the poor so that they can also go to the feasts, so that they can also be taken care of, that they can also partake in covenant life. One of the greatest indictments Paul, Paul writes in the New Testament to the one Corinthians church, to the, Corinth, to the one Corinthians church. There was only one Corinthian church. I don't know who second Corinthian church he's written to. And uh, the, he writes to them in 1 Corinthians 11, and he talks about the discord about them, how the rich are having their communion, and they're getting drunk and all this kind of thing, and the poor are with them. But they don't, in the way that they're having communion, they're not understanding covenant life and the unity that they had together in the faith. This, sec, this third tithe says, I understand that I'm going to every third year give to the poor, that those who can't afford to go to Jerusalem, it's important that they go. They're a part of this nation, and they need to experience these things as well. So I'm going to make a way for them to go. Do you understand the principle? Looking after them and their well-being and their future. This is more than just, I want you to understand that this third tithe is more than just a handout. It's more than just a meal now and then. It's... It's, it's empowering them and enabling them to engage in a part of life in a meaningful, in a covenant life in a meaningful, beautiful way. James 1.27, pure and unblemished religion as it is expressed in outward acts in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit and look after the fatherless and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself uncontaminated from the secular world. So it doesn't just say send money, but to visit and look after, care for them, make sure that they're taken care of. Proverbs 19, 17. If you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord, and He will repay. In our vocational, vocational day and age, while these principles remain, their practice can be worked out slightly differently. As most of us work with budgets and allocate our income towards fixed monthly costs, remembering where the second tithe should go on can become an administrative headache. A good way around this is to apply the practice monthly, paying two-thirds of our second tithe to ourselves, and one-third to the poor every month. Does that make sense to you? An example of how this will be calculated on a monthly budget can be found at the conclusion of this lesson, so we will get to that later. So instead of me paying two months to myself and one month to the poor, every month I pay two-thirds of my second tithe to me and one-third to the poor. Now, what can paying it to me look like? It can look like various different things. It can look like a retirement annuity. It can look like an investment policy for my children's education. 
It can look like a bank account that I put money away for to take my family on a special holiday and have wonderful time of building family relationship and making memories. It can look like many different things. But the idea is that God says, I want you to put some money aside for you, not just you individually that you can go and buy everything you want, but for communal life, for covenant life, for family life, being together and celebrating that and feasting and enjoying it. If you don't plan for it, not going to happen. Do you understand? Right, let's talk briefly about offerings. Offerings are a seed for our next harvest. God desires for us to give offerings. It's very clear. Number one, in faith, expecting a harvest for the seed we sow. We've read 1, 2, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 10 already. We've read Luke 6 verse 38. And I want you to get this into your hearts tonight, folks. Because I know we grapple with this, and I have grappled with this in the past before. I know, Uncle, Uncle Nick, you said something about this last week as well. We don't give to receive, right? And I understand that that's not the heart motivation. But what we need to realize is that God has put in Scripture and says, I want to bless you. And here's how I want to bless you. When you give, I want you to believe me for a harvest. I want to use your generosity and faith to minister a blessing back to you. So when I say to God, God, I'm giving, but I'm not giving to get anything, we're saying, God, I'm giving. and I'm gi There's nothing wrong with the heart attitude to say I want to bless you, but you're saying, God, I, you're not we're not cooperating with God in the very principle He instituted and He put in place for our blessing, the means through which He wants to bless us. Does that make sense? When we give, God expects us to give in faith. We give in faith knowing that we give the seed that He has given us, and we give in faith expecting that He is the one who brings us our harvest. It's an act of expectation. And I want to say this to you. God loves it when we place our expectation in Him because He loves coming through for us. That is our Father. It's our pride and it's our insecurities, our lack of trust, our lack of faith that cause us to have, perhaps withhold and think we have to take care of ourselves. Sometimes when we step out there and just trust God, He loves to show Himself strong on our behalf, the Bible says. So the point I wanted to make is when we give offerings to God, yes, we give it with a thankful and a gracious heart. That is the starting point. But we understand that we give in faith, expecting a harvest from the seed that we sow. Number two, we give of our own free will. Not because it's demanded, not because it's expected. Number three, we give with a generous and cheerful heart. That's key. Not begrudgingly. And number three, number four, we give with gratitude. It is wise to budget for offerings. If we do not make provision for, for giving offerings, we will find that when it comes time to sow, we have eaten our seed. So I was talking to you about that earlier on. So how, how would you work this out in your life? Or how do, you know, there's, there's different ways. Some people would give a fixed offering every month. Other people pray every month. God, what do you want me to give? There's different ways that I've approached this in the past. The one is to give a regular offering every month. That God, this is, this just, I'm just going to allocate this portion for offering. And I want to just keep seed flowing. And most of the time, unless you guide me otherwise, that's where I'm going to be giving it. In addition to that, you could say, and I'm also, Father God, I'm going to put money aside in a seed account. That when I need seed to sow, I've got seed to sow. When somebody, there's a need, and you're saying, Michael, I want you to meet that need, that I've got something for that. So I'm giving 
it doesn't belong to me, but I'm storing it up so that it becomes significant so that I can bless somebody else. Other people, they wait for God just to speak before they give. The difficulty I have with that is often I'm not waiting on God to hear what he wants me to give. I'm waiting on God for all kinds of other things. And secondly, when, when and if God does speak, I don't have what he, what, what's required. I'm now saying, what, will he please provide me with seed? Do you understand? So we need to be careful and why, why is in this? Special needs require special seeds. Allow God to lead you in your sowing so that you sow the kind of seed needed to bring about the harvest you require. I'll give you a brief testimony on this that really just solidified my heart. I've heard Pastor Andreas say a number of times, you know, if you have a need, give a sow, sow a seed. Ask God what seed you need to sow for the need that you have. And he's given examples about um, one of the cars that he purchased over the years. He sowed a seed for a car, and, God, and then he's prayed about it again, and God said, no, 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 that's the seed that I need. He gave additional money, and it unlocked the provision. It came miraculously. I'll never forget, my, my, my first time I did this was, I, do you, do you, how many of you remember my old blue polo? You remember that old blue polo? And it came to a point where I needed to spend about eight and a half, nine thousand rand on a car. It needed new tires, it needed new shocks, it had a hole in the exhaust. There was just a lot of stuff that needed to be done. And I just didn't have the money. But I had about a thousand rand. And my colleague at work needed new front tires on his car. So one day, I went up to his office. I said, just give me your keys. I need to move your car. And it took me about three quarters of an hour to an hour to move his car. Because I had to move it to go and put new tires on his, on his car. And I took his car, put new tires on. And my doing that was to bless him because I know he couldn't afford it. <coughs> but also in doing that, it was saying, God, I need this. This is what I need for my car. How do I sow a seed in this? I see somebody has a need and I can meet that need. Father, I'm applying my faith to, the, faith to this. I'm going to meet that need and I'm going to trust you to meet my need. Now, it doesn't make any sense for you to say, you need more money while you're giving money away. This is the principle of seed time and harvest. So anyways, long story short, this was probably in about August. November came, my birthday month. I got some money for my birthday. And it was very strange that in my quiet times, as though, although I was getting excited, I didn't have enough money yet, God said, that's not your harvest. And I knew that that money wasn't for my car. And then I remember Christmas bonuses time came, and I got a 13th check that year. And God said, that's not your bonus. That's not your harvest. These were still natural things that would have come to me without any kind of faith. I didn't need to believe God for birthday money. People loved me. They were going to give me some birthday money. My bonus was coming. Everybody in the company got but That wasn't God moving miraculously, you see. Until one day, it was about the 23rd of December, 22nd of December that year, somewhere around there. I was in church one morning. I was here. And somebody handed me a brown envelope and said, this is for you. I'm not allowed to tell you who this comes from. But they asked me to give this to you. And inside that envelope was 10,000 rand. And that was my harvest. And I knew that was my harvest. And can you imagine how excited I was when I went home and I said to my mom, Mom, someone gave me 10,000 rand. 10,000 rand! Who gives somebody 10,000 rand? And then I told her the story. And today, still, she sometimes talks about that, that, that day when I came home with 10,000 rand in cash. You know, that was like I'd won the lotto to her. You know, it was an amazing thing. But something settled in my heart that day. This principle of seed time and harvest. And not simply looking to natural means to meet natural needs, 
but looking to God to meet natural needs supernaturally by applying His principles. That's the way this works. So, let's bring this to a conclusion. We've spoken about seeds. Let's quickly speak about Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus clearly taught that we are to honor our financial obligations, both as citizens of the kingdom as well as citizens of whatever earthly government we belong to. So Tony Fitzgerald says it this way. One of the reasons God wants his people so blessed is because they're the only people on the earth he expects to support two, two kingdoms financially, two financial systems, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of our God. And he wants his people to support both. So he wants to bless them so that they can be a blessing. Matthew 22, 17 to 22. This is the, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you just for the sake of time. Oh, let's read it. It's not that long. Okay. Now, tell us, this is the, the Pharisees, I think it is, speaking to Jesus. And he says, tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In other words, is it right to honor this oppressive kingdom that is dominating God's people? Should we pay their taxes to them? They're dominating us. They're forcing us to do this. But Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me the coin used for the tax. And when they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, whose picture is stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And this reply amazed them and they went away. As ambassadors of Christ, we need to set an example of good governance and stewardship over all areas of our lives including our financial affairs. Withholding from others that which is due to them undermines our testimony, as well as God's blessing and provision over their lives. Years ago, there was a SARS advert, which was brilliant. It talks about, would you lie? Would you lie about this? Would you tell a lie about that? No, I'm not a liar. And people were quite vehement at the suggestion that they could lie. Until they asked, because it's one of these polygraph tests, until they asked them, have you ever lied on your tax return? <laughs> I'm not a liar. I'm not a thief. Have you lied on your tax return? Why? You're withholding from Caesar that which is due to him. We ought to set an example in this as believers. Give to Caesar what is due to Caesar's. To Caesar. It's just, it's just a very simple principle. Not more than what is due to him. You give to him what is due to him. So I'm not talking, I'm talking about tax evasion, not tax avoidance. Does that make sense? <laughs> All right. Here's the conclusion. Here's a spiritual principle. If God is not the Lord of my finances... I can't call him the Lord of my heart. That goes back to the David Guzik quote that I quoted last week. The heart of giving can be expressed in many ways. Number one, through giving of our substance, through acts of compassion, love, and kindness, by using our gifts and talents to bless and help others, by sharing the measure of the Spirit we have received. Matthew 10, 8 says, Freely you've received, freely give. The structured, faithful, and purposeful giving outlined in this lesson honors the biblical principles on the subject. These principles enable us to activate the blessing of God over our lives and families in the same way that we would activate salvation, that we would activate healing, these things that have been freely given. We activate that blessing and get it working through applying these principles by faith. Our first fruit aligns our hearts with the man or woman that God has placed in our lives to shepherd us in spiritual matters and bring us to a place of maturity. It honors and blesses them, and if that weren't enough, it attracts the blessing of God over your whole household. 
Our tithe positions us under an open heaven and is the outflow of gratitude and for provision and blessings received. It's interesting. The tithe isn't paid to get blessing. It doesn't say you can only tithe from blessing you've received. The tithe is a response to blessing, not a means to it. Our offerings are seed for the provision for our next harvest. Let's read what Derek Prince says, and then we'll get into the example of a monthly budget. So, when we give our money to God, we are giving a very important part of our lives. We are giving Him our time, our strength, and our talents. Most of us put the major portion of our efforts into the work that brings our income. When we offer God the appointed share of our income, we are offering ourselves to God. Isn't that beautifully put? Derek Prince does a good job with that. So let's look at this example of a monthly budget. And we've just used a nice round number of a thousand, whatever it may be, rand, dollars, pounds, kwacha, wherever you are, it doesn't matter. Let's just assume that that's your income, whether it's salary or wage. So if your income is a thousand rand for the month, your first fruits at two and a half percent, because that's the 40th, not the 60th, would be about 25 rand. The one thing Tony Fitzgerald said really stuck with me. He says, when it comes to the first fruits, it's not a large portion. It's enough to bless that man in your life, but it's not enough to control them, and that's important. If I'm dependent on you for my livelihood, I can no longer correct you. I can no longer discipline you in the Lord. Does that make sense? Second of all, after that comes off the tithe. So 10% Calculated at 10% of to total income after first fruits is deducted. So 10% of 975 is 97 Rand 50, and we've got 87750 left over. Then estimate how much tax you have to pay. So what does this mean? Don't doesn't my tax come off my payslip before I even get my money? Yes, it does. But the principle is this: I want to tithe and I want to give my first fruits off my gross, not my net. I give God first, even though they take it off. In my estimation and calculations, I put God first. Off my growth, gross. You see, tithes, uh, big pardon, tax, UIF, uh, uh, PAYE, all of these things are things that you pay in relation to the fullness that you, to your cost to company, that's what they call it, to what has been measured to you. And so I calculate my tithes and my first fruits on that which has been measured to me from the gross. So then would come my tax off. Then my second tithe on what remains, I would take... Uh, that's how I calculated there. So calculated at 6.66% of income after first fruits, first tithe, and tax is deducted. It sounds complicated, but it's not really. You understand the principle. It's the second and third tithe thing. So two-thirds of my second tithe I pay to myself. One-third of my second tithe, called the third tithe, I give to the poor. I give to, for those, for those reasons, the poor, the widow, the orphan, that sort of thing. And then offerings. Whatever offerings the Lord may, may do. And this is concerning simply the giving aspect of life. How many of you guys remember money and milk tart? Were you here for that? You weren't here for that. The last time I received the tart, we had milk tart in church. And we spoke about how when you cut up a milk tart, if, if your milk tart is your gross income, and you start cutting up, so my expenses every month, I've got to pay school fees, I've got to pay medical aid, I've got to pay cell phone, I've got to pay petrol, I've got to pay mortgage, I've got to pay this, I've got to pay all of these things. And th those slices keep coming out of your multi until you don't have very much left. And then you start saying, okay, I've got to pay God now. And people say, yeah, but look, you've done all of those things. 
uh, how much have you got left as a percentage of the whole, you know? Uh, what, about, what about mortgage? What about medical aid? What about all of those things? And I'm going to say to you, yes, those things are all very important. But what about God? If I start cutting up my, my, my milk tart, and I know what my milk tart's going to be because I have a budget for that. And I say, right, God, that's yours. Your first fruits, offering, your tithes, offerings. And from whatever is left, I will pay, dot, dot, dot. I will pay. And I will base my lifestyle not upon the potential to, to, to spend, but I will base my lifestyle upon what I have after I have made sure I have put God first. Do you understand the difference in the principle? I think it's Derek Prince that also says this. He says, he's heard people say to him they can't afford to tithe. My response, he says, is always, I can't afford not to tithe. Why? Because as soon as I start withholding the tithe and the first fruits, I, 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 I take out of God's hands the means through which he wants to provide the blessing I need to provide growth in my, in my sphere of income. God says, I want to bless this. Do it, and you'll experience the blessing. It'll work. Get the blessing working. So you're saying, I can't afford to do that. Then you're going to stay stuck in your situation. Do you understand the principle here? So this is the mathematical equation of, of how we will easily, most easily work it out today. Personal application. The ultimate expression of God's love is that he gave his only son for us, John 3.16. Giving is an expression of love. It's also an expression of trust. Our love for God is expressed as we give ourselves to Him in the obedience of discipleship. And the way we manage our money ought to reflect this as it reveals where our affections and priorities lie. That, oh, sorry, what is your money saying about you? Amen? Questions or comments? Megan. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.